never do this right. What is it? Just hello, I'm Steve and you're Matt and welcome to Marvel Reread Club. Is that what we do? That's what we do. Like that? Okay, yeah. So hello, everybody. I'm Steve Bird. And I'm Matt Bird. And welcome to Marvel Reread Club. I just saw the Marvel exhibit at the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry. I've heard good things. It is amazing. They have a tremendous amount of original art. They have all the costumes from the movies. They've got all sorts of really neat stuff. They've got a lot of interactive computer exhibits that are really neat. They're like, Marvel, isn't Marvel wonderful? Marvel is the most wonderful thing in the history of mankind. Everything about Marvel is wonderful and great, except for Vince Coletta. And... <laughs> There is a whole interactive computer exhibit about how terrible Vince Coletta is in this celebration of all things Marvel. And it shows four different Thor panels as they were penciled by Kirby and then as they were inked by Coletta to eliminate characters from the panels. Right. And like, I'm like, yeah, I've seen these on the Internet. I never thought I would see them here at this exhibit celebrating all things Marvel. And then it had a page. It had a Thor page inked by Coletta. And then you could use your finger to wipe the page and erase the Coletta inks and then hit a button and use your finger to re-ink the page by Mike Royer and then again by Greg Feekson, Wow, who were two of Kirby's preferred inkers. And they were showing how different inkers ink a page. But it was very clearly aimed at Coletta and how terrible Coletta was. As a comic book anchor, I am very excited by the idea that they are actually showing people what inking is and what it does and what it brings to the page. On the other hand, whenever you got stuff like that, I'm like, you know, the guy's still got a family. I mean, you know, they're, they're, he, has, he has relatives that are still out there. That's just, ugh. And as I've said, yes, I have definitely understood how terrible his work was in the 60s. Personally, I kind of like his stuff in the 80s. I know that I'm in the minority on that, but yeah, anyway, one way or the other. Right. <sighs> but I, yeah, I thought it was just very funny that they felt the need to go out of their way to do that. Yeah, I've seen a number of people in the uh, Facebook group that I'm part of, Marvel Comics fans, 1961 to 1986, have shared some photos from their visits there and have talked about how great it is. So well, hopefully uh, it'll go on tour. Hopefully it'll show up some other places. Oh, that would be nice. Oh, I just saw Shang-Chi. Uh-huh. And what did you think of it? Um, it was a very fun movie. Uh, I don't know how much of a Shang-Chi movie it really was. No, it was not even remotely a Shang-Chi movie. Really, my exposure to Shang-Chi consists of the half dozen last issues of the original series. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's like all I've ever read of Shang-Chi. Probably a lot of this mythology that's been written since before I ever started reading that maybe some of this is drawn from that, but it just seems to me like they were just like, no, we're just going to take him. We're going to mash him up with Iron Fist and the Mandarin and just sort of put them all in a blender and take out any of the Hong Kong British Secret Service stuff. And then there you go. <laughs> yeah, this was really much more of an Iron Fist movie. Yeah. American kung fu guy finds out that he has a history involving a fabled mystical Chinese city that can only be found at a certain time. 
and he goes to this mystical Chinese city where there are dragons and he has to fight the people who are assaulting the city. This is all Iron Fist. None of this has yeah. anything to do with Shang-Chi. That was my take on it too. But like I said, I'm like, oh, I don't know. Maybe they did some other stuff with him over time. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's the, I mean, because Shang-Chi was Marvel's answer to James Bond. He worked for the British Secret Service and he went on spy missions for the British Secret Service and that's what it was. So I had completely avoided all trailers and reviews and anything about this movie. So I was fully expecting this movie to be a Bond movie. And ah. I thought he and Blackjack Tar were going to be going on missions, <laughs> fight international supervillains for the British Secret Service. Boy, oh boy, was it not that. No. I would say this is the least faithful Marvel movie ever. Now, before this, the least faithful Marvel movie was certainly Guardians of the Galaxy. And I love Guardians of the Galaxy, so I have no problem with unfaithful Marvel movies. And I liked this movie okay. But boy, oh boy, it could not have been less. And I mean, the even bigger difference is that Shang-Chi in the comics is just a very serious philosophical character. He's right. just yeah, you someone who is that. just always weighed down by the morality of things and thinking very philosophically about everything. And I knew they were going to turn him into a chucklehead because they turned everybody into a chucklehead. And right. boy, oh boy, did they turn him into a chucklehead. Either a chucklehead or an arrogant bastard. Like that, that seems <laughs> <laughs> Okay, sure. Um, yeah, but uh, you know, one of the things that I thought was just like, would have just been such an easy little shout out to the people who are actual Shang-Chi fans who might be off-put by the movie generally, would be when they're doing the karaoke scene. I was like, oh, well, certainly they'll be doing a, uh, a Fleetwood Mac song. I, I had the same thought. I was like, why couldn't they right. have done Fleetwood Mac in karaoke? Because he was super into Fleetwood Mac yes. in the comics. Multiple times they made a very, you know, there's one time you actually saw the cover of Rumors on the album cover <laughs> as he's taking the record out in the in the comic. I almost wonder if that was the plan, but that there was some rights. They yeah. were playing hardball on the rights, and they're like, all right, screw you. We'll go with the Eagles. Yeah. <laughs> when they, they already used uh, the chain in Guardians of the Galaxy. That would be a good one. You know, with the way they did the rings, it's kind of like a big chain. And I was like, oh, yeah, that would have worked. But I yeah, had the exact same thought. That'd be so easy, right? I don't know. I don't know how these things work. So I believe that this month we are doing the comics that came out in February of 1963, Marvel Superhero Comics from February of 1963, which includes Fantastic Four number 11, as well as issues of Journey into Mystery, Strange Tales, and Tales to Astonish. Is that what you have on your list? Yes. So this is a major month. Yes. It's the last month with only four books. And already starting in next month, we're going to start going up to six, seven, eight books a month. And it is not surprisingly, it's the last month in which Stan and Jack do everything. And <laughs> this is, you know, in many ways, this month marks the end of Marvel phase one. So far, it's been except for that one issue of Amazing Fantasy number 15, illustrated by Steve Ditko, which was just one brief 15 page story. We've had Stan and Jack doing almost everything by themselves with a little assistance from Larry Lieber. And then we've got the Kirby apocalypse this month. So Kirby has been penciling five books. He's been penciling Fantastic Four, Hulk, Thor, Human Torch, and Ant-Man. Well, as of this month, he has gone off four of those five books. He has already done his last issue of Hulk, which is off this month. And this is his final issue ever of Ant-Man, his final issue ever of Human Torch, and his final issue for the time being of Thor. I think he is falsely remembered as 
you know, well, Thor was his book. It was his baby. It was the book he was most devoted to. It was the book that he stayed on the longest other than Fantastic Four. But people forget that he left the book at the same time he left these other books. So this is going to be his last issue for almost a year. And what Kirby is going to do is he's going to leave four of his five books. And then gradually over the course of 1963, he will gradually replace all of those books. So he will eventually replace those four books with Sergeant Fury, Avengers, X-Men, and then he'll return to Thor. So those will be the four books he'll replace these four missing books with over the course of the next year. But then starting next month, we're going to add Spider-Man. We're going to add Iron Man, both of which will not be by Kirby. And it's going to be a very different looking Marvel Universe. Yes, very much so. I think one of the reasons why this is the time when the Kirby apocalypse actually happens is if I recall correctly, and I didn't research this before we got on, this I'm just going from memory, I'm pretty sure that we're going to have our first superhero comics annuals coming up this summer. And uh-huh. I think that he's going off and he draws a whole double-sized issue for Fantastic Four, certainly, and for I forget which other ones have one this year. That's basically two more issues that he's doing for each of these comics. And I think that's the impression I've gotten is that that's why this happens at this point in time. I'm not so sure about that. I I think Fantastic Four number one is the first annual, and I think we're still about six or so months away from that. Okay. Or maybe even a little more. I don't know, but we'll see. As my old teacher used to say, you do some research on that and get back to me. <laughs> Just a second. I will do some research on that right now. Fantastic Four annual number one. When did this come out? It was published July 1963. So this is cover dated February 1963. Yeah, so this was July 1963. So Okay, so you're right. Yeah, it's coming up. Well, I I don't know if I'm right, but at least my story is not contradicted by events. (laughs) Let's put it that way. (laughs) So yeah, let's get into uh, Fantastic Four here. This is a really interesting issue in many ways. It is. Yeah, we we get lots of backstory filled in, but the backstory is questionable in many ways, which I have some feelings about, which we will talk about in a little bit. And also we get introduced to the Impossible Man, who really comes across here like one of these sort of one-off villains like Kurgo or whatever his name was in uh, in a recent issue, or like the Infant Terrible who's going to be coming up in an issue near, you know, coming up here. He just seems like one of these kind of, ah, it's an alien who does some stuff and creates havoc and then disappears and It's all interesting, but whatever. But he ends up coming back. I think that Roy Thomas first reintroduces him years later. But then when we were collecting comics in the early and mid-80s, he was showing up all over the place. He was like a regular kind of guest star character that would show up a lot. So this is our first... I think he's delightful here. I think he's a very funny character, and I'm not surprised he was brought back. Well, neither am I, but it's just the fact that he sort of disappears as though he were never going to come back until... Other writers are like, you know who is awesome? Impossible Man. And they bring him back for all sorts of crazy stuff. Actually, you know, I play the the Marvel deck building game called Legendary. And I, for a while, got into the subculture of people coming up with their own custom cards, their own Uh custom cards for heroes and villains. And I actually did come up with an Impossible Man set. Uh, for for a mastermind. It was all just like attacking can't hurt him. You have to use what they call recruit, essentially convincing him to stop doing what he's doing. But it would do things like, hey, take your entire hand. Now you have to pass it to the player on your right and you get the other hand from the person on your left. You know, just things right. like that where it's just like 
goes nuts. And I guess that's my way of saying that I uh, have always liked the Impossible Man. I guess so. So, all right. So let's do the cover real quick here. On the cover, it says the Fantastic Four number 11. What's going on here? Why is the Fantastic Four backing away helplessly from the Impossible Man? Don't miss this great offbeat collector's item issue. And it shows the backing away. And then it shows on the bottom. Also, you requested a day with the Fantastic Four featuring never before revealed facts about the FF's past and present. So we've got a two-story issue, and they are both doozies. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is the first time we've had, I mean, they used to split the Fantastic Four issues up into chapters, but I think this is the first time we've had two separate stories in a Fantastic Four issue, isn't it? It is. It's one of maybe the only time. Yeah, yeah. So we begin on page one with new comic book day at the newsstand, and there's a long line of kids and adults all waiting to get their issues and up strolls the fantastic for themselves to go and check it out they see all these kids dressed up and playing like they are the fantastic four and the fantastic four come up and sort of interact with them and they get a big thrill out of it even though um ben is super grumpy about the whole thing but they're still totally knocked out by this whole thing so then they leave the kids head into the baxter building and we meet another i don't know would you call this a major character no <laughs> No, you mean Willie Lumpkin, the mailman. Willie Lumpkin, the mailman. Come on. He's a longstanding character. Yes, a longstanding character. He will <laughs> occasionally show up consistently throughout the years. Yes. And so he is saying that he could join the Fantastic Four because he has fantastic ear wiggling skills. And they're like, yeah, OK, we're, we're all full up. Thanks, though. So then they go up to their headquarters and dump out all of their fan mail, which is an entire sack of fan mail. So, of course, the thing has... A prank yes. gift from the Yancey Street Gang. It's actually a little boxing glove on an articulated little thing that comes out. I'm like, wow, that's a really, you know. Gadget. Yeah, that, that's a super gadget for like a gang of street kids to uh, to come up with here. He gets all mad, but then Reed pours a little bit of his latest Cure the Thing serum on him and he turns back into Ben at which point Sue is hugging him and saying, oh, you're a real living doll. But now he's into Alicia, so he's no longer like, oh, I'll take her away from you, Reed, like he had been at one right. point earlier. Johnny leaves to go work on a sports car, and then the other ones talk about their days and their youth and how they got to know each other. So we find out that the reason that Ben was in college is because he was a football star and he was recruited for the football team, and that Reed was a millionaire's son. Yes. Which so, eventually we'll find out more about his family. But the whole idea of him being a millionaire son was never really a big part of his story. And I feel like eventually it was sort of retconned out. Yeah, well, it's so it, it would be really easy to explain that away because they do say that his starship or whatever you want to call it, the, the fateful ship was actually financed by him. So, you know, it could be he took his inheritance from his father and spent it all on that project. Also, he did end up going bankrupt by investing in bad stocks just a few issues earlier. So one way or the other, even if he was born into a millionaire family, he has lost the family fortune. It looks yes. like you know, twice now. So this is fascinating. So we, mm -hmm. we've, I don't know if they've said before that Reed and Ben were college roommates, which for one thing means that they're the same age. I had always gotten the impression that Reed was older than Ben. But so they were college roommates. And of course, we've already found out that Dr. Doob was also a college classmate of theirs, although that is not mentioned here. We find out that Reed was a millionaire son. Ben was a football hero. So then they both go off to World War II. And Ben becomes a Marine fighter ace over Okinawa and Guadalcanal. Reed uh -huh. joins the OSS and is going on missions behind enemy lines. 
But then even more fascinating is that Reed then says, but all the time I was at the front, I dreamed of the day I'd return home to the girl who was always in my thoughts, the girl I'd left behind. Sue, who is never super into Reed in these original issues, says, please, Reed, let's skip over that part of it. It's rather painful for me. And he says, but Sue, you know, it's you I'm talking about. It's always been you since we were kids living next door to each other. What? And so what? This what? makes no sense. <laughs> so if they were kids at the same time, and so if Reed and Ben both fought in World War II in the early 40s, presumably after America entered the war, so this is sometime in the early 40s, and Reed and Ben fought in World War II, and Sue grew up alongside Reed, that would imply that all three of these people are in their 40s. Yeah. And that Sue is clearly not in her 40s. She's never written as though she's in her 40s. She has never drawn as though she's in her 40s. It just makes no sense with the character they've created here. She does not have graying temples. Like, like <laughs> well, Reed I mean, she dies. She dies her hair. I mean, that's yeah, true. And they okay. have they, it is canon that she dyes her hair. That does come up later. So I oh, guess really? maybe she okay. is in her 40s. That did come up in the John Byrne issues. But then they've established that Johnny is in high school. So Johnny must be 20 years younger than his sister if she well, grew no, up with someone no. who then fought in the OSS. Yeah, no, yes, that would make sense. But then Johnny says in one of the flashbacks when they're about to take off in the spaceship, says, you're the guy I cheered my lungs out for when you were Mr. Big on the football field. I guess I was wasting my breath. Wait a second. <laughs> right. I know. Yes. So now Johnny is in Johnny is at least in his late thirties. Yes. Yeah. No, it, it is, just makes no sense. <laughs> this is just Stan and Jack not realizing how old they themselves were. And just writing like, oh, you know, these are young swinging guys like ourselves, Stan and Jack. And it's like, no, Stan and Jack, you're old. You both were at least on the American side in World War II. One of you actually fought on the front lines and one didn't. But your characters are not this old. They're already, when this comic was published in 1963, these characters weren't old enough to have fought in World War II or to have been the girl who one of them grew up alongside or to have been the boy who was cheering one of them on in a football team. And certainly it wasn't going to age well as the Fantastic Four continued to be published on into the 70s, 80s, 90s, aughts and teens, although it wasn't published very much in the teens. And then in the oh, 20s, right. uh, I think that by the time we were reading comics in the early 80s, they had pretty much retconned out the whole World War II service yes. for them. If I'm not, well, they would have been in their 60s by that point. Right, exactly. Well, and, you know, you could get away with that with Ben. But Reed, uh, maybe, but yes, yeah, so I, I think they'd, they'd pretty much dropped that by the time he got to 1980. Yes. But the timeline on this makes zero sense at all. So yeah, I, as I said, I, I've got some feelings about this, <laughs> and I needed to talk about them. All right, so then they get to some letters, some disturbing letters that Sue has gotten from people saying that she doesn't contribute enough to the team, the team would be better off without her, and she's like, maybe they're right. And they're like, oh, my God, look at these horrible letters she's been getting. It's like, you know, well, it's time we set the record straight. And then they, like, talk to the camera. Like they're, they're pointing out at the reader right now, talking about, well, first of all, then they go and talk about how important mothers are to important men, which, you know, <laughs> I, I'm like, dude, you're not helping your case there. That's so Reed goes over. <laughs> Reed goes over to his bust of Lincoln, which just in case anybody didn't recognize it, has a little A Lincoln carved under the bottom of it. And he says, maybe this will help them to understand. See this bust of Abe Lincoln? Remember his famous remark about his mother? The time he said that all he was, all that he ever hoped to be, he owed to her. 
Lincoln's mother was the most important person in the world to him, but she didn't help him fight the Civil War. She didn't split rails for him. She didn't battle with his enemies. In fact, if we printed Lincoln's life in our mag, some wise guy would probably write in and ask why we don't leave his mother out of the story because she doesn't do enough. So insane. <laughs> they're, they're not helping their case on this one right here. No, no. They then follow up with talking about how proactive she actually was in some of the earlier issues. And that is, you know, they should have just led with that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they should have led and finished with that. <laughs> well, I think he figured I spent all this money on a bust of Abraham Lincoln. This is probably the only chance I'm going to have to lecture people about it. I should go ahead and take that chance. That that sounds that yeah that sounds like him. Then of course, unfortunately, Ben reverts back to being the thing. They're trying to console him, saying, "No, I'm getting better at this. We can we can cure you." Then they get an alarm, and remember, Johnny headed downstairs to work on his hot rod a little bit earlier. They have an alarm going off, and they go and check on. And here's a callback. They apparently still have the uh, flying saucer that they got from Planet X. Matt, remember when you said we never hear a Kurgo again, so there's no reason why we would ever know about this issue if we were studying anything else about the Fantastic Four? Here's a callback to that issue. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so they go in, and apparently it's actually Sue's birthday, and Johnny had snuck out in order to get the surprise party ready. So they have a surprise party with a big birthday cake on the alien flying saucer. Because why not? That's the end of the crazy story. And there's just one candle on the birthday cake. So we don't get to count the candles and figure out how exactly far into her early 40s that she is. (laughs) Well, no, a lady never tells. Yes. All right. So once again, this is just all of the... Well, okay. One thing you were saying, oh, this would not age well. I don't think they were thinking of that at all. You know, I mean, no. uh, the the way the legend goes, and, you know, who knows how much of this is actually what Stanley Lieber thought and how much of it is what Stan Lee came up with later, that, you know, he was just going to finally quit this dead-end, stupid, embarrassing job that he had and go off and do something more respectable. But he's like, uh, I'll just go ahead and try it my way before, you know, or actually the way this, the story goes, his wife said, why don't you just try to do at least one of them your way before you quit? And that was a fantastic board and that started all this stuff off. Who knows how much truth there is in any of that. But I really do get the impression that there really wasn't any thought to, oh, well, what are we doing in terms of the chronology of this when we get 15 years down the road? I really don't get the impression that they ever gave any thought whatsoever to, oh, well, how is this story that we're telling now going to affect the chronology of stuff when we get 15 years down the road? Will this lock us into these people being too old? I think the whole reason why this universe was able to evolve into the thing that it has evolved into is because it was disposable entertainment. It's because it was being created by people who had very little oversight and were just trying to make this as interesting as they could for themselves while they, you know, made a living in this somewhat embarrassing field. And so, you know, but that gives you the freedom then to do all sorts of crazy stuff. And they did all sorts of stuff with it. But yeah, I don't think any of them gave any thought to that sort of stuff. At least that's nope. my impression. Nope. So the impossible man. Do you want to go ahead and do this one here? Right. So we then get at last the fantastic four meet a foe whose power is even greater than theirs. Here is the impossible man. So we've got a bunch of bums who are sitting around eating and alien lions hobos. And he hobos. hobos. Yeah. Hobos, <laughs> not bums. And uh, hobos are sitting around. He's like, Hi, I want your food. 
They say, oh, you'll need money. He goes, what's money? They say, you get it from a bank. He goes to a bank. He steals all the money from a bank. <laughs> Police try to shoot at him. He turns into metal. It all bounces off of him. He goes to a fancy restaurant to spend his money. Uh, and whenever, and anyone tur- whenever anyone turns into metal, they always get rivets on them. For whatever <laughs> yes. Reason. Yes. Heaven always. forbid they not be riveted. <laughs> so then the Fantastic Four land, they ask him his, about his origin, of course. He says he comes from the planet Pop-Up, where they have so many predators, they've learned to transform their bodies and anything they need to transform it into. And then he decided to take a vacation to come to Earth. And the Fantastic Four try to stop him, and they just can't. He's all-powerful. He is an extremely powerful villain who can just turn into anything. So then the police get involved. The army gets involved. Everybody's trying to stop him. They just can't stop him. Then Reed comes up with a clever plan. He says, listen, everybody, there's no use in fighting the impossible man. Let him have his way. Ignore him. Don't fight him. That is what I shall recommend to the police of every state in the nation. And they said, never thought Reed Richards would turn yellow. Of course, that's where everybody's mind instantly goes in the moral universe says, me neither. And then he shows several wonderful panels of the impossible man doing all these horrible things. And they're like, that creepy pinhead is ruining our whole TV show. Just let him alone. The word is out from upstairs to ignore the impossible man. And then he's like, I stole this silly little airplane and crashed it. You know, these policemen, why don't they try to punish me? And the policemen are just saying, what's new, Mike? Nothing much, Joe. It's been a pretty quiet day so far. <laughs> and then during the boxing match, the boxer who's refusing to box the impossible man is just saying to his coach, it'll be a nice day if it don't rain, huh? <laughs> it's like someone else is like, yeah, killer. You know, hey, let's just literally pretend like he's not even here. So it works. The impossible man becomes bored by everybody ignoring him and flies off supposedly never to return and yes. he, he was beaten by the one thing he couldn't fight sheer boredom and i don't think he shows up again until the roy thomas storyline where galactus returns is that true i think it's before that, that but okay. it's it's a while no it's he's around for a while before galactus eventually is persuaded to go to pop up where it turns out that everybody survives just fine the planet getting eaten by galactus because of their amazing abilities yes he so, he doesn't show up for another 10 years, but I love this story. I think it's, yeah. you know, I always like stories that involve cleverness. And this is a very clever solution to the to the problem. of, And it's very funny watching everybody ignoring the impossible man. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So one of the things I do notice is that when they are in the restaurant and he's about to walk out and they're trying to stop him, the impossible man turns himself into quote, an asbestos-bladed buzzsaw. Now, this is from Reed. (laughs) So Reed sees him turn into a buzzsaw and somehow is able to tell instantaneously that this is an an asbestos-bladed buzzsaw, which, um, so I I guess that's maybe another superpower of Reed's. He can just look at things and identify (laughs) asbestos even when they're spinning at hundreds of RPMs. All right, let's see. Anything else that I was going to mention on this here? I don't think so. This is good. You did a good job getting the spirit of this thing in here. It's a super fun issue. So where in your issue does the Fantastic Four pinup page show up? Of the Submariner? Yes. Yeah, between the two stories. Okay. Yeah, on mine, it's at the end here. Which, honestly, you know, as you pointed out, Kirby is usually great doing layers. This is not his best layer, no, in my it's opinion. Fine. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's just it. It's, it's fine. It's okay. Yeah. He, well, he doesn't get a helmet. He doesn't get a throne. Those are Kirby's two favorite things, are helmets and thrones. Yes. All right. Good. Yeah. I do have an ad. I posted on Facebook that there is an ad for grit. Boys, 12 and older, make $1 to $5 weekly in your spare time. Sell grit. And, I'm, and I said on Facebook, grit? 
was the original multi-level marketing. Before there were multi-level marketing scams, there was grit, where boys were expected to buy the newspapers and then try to sell them. And never once did they advertise, hey, there's actual good material in grit. It's always like, no, you should be buying these papers from us for you to sell and you will get rich. Right. One gets the feeling that this entire thing was the world's biggest scam. So did grit predate either Avon or Tupperware? I don't know. I, I feel like it did. I feel like grit goes back to the 50s and, and I feel like Avon and Tupperware were more recent than that, but I could be wrong. It could be that those yeah. were those were well, older more, multi-level marketing. What well, one way or the other, your point stands that yeah, it is not unlike a multi-level marketing scheme. Uh, I don't know if there actually were multi-levels. I don't know whether <laughs> kids could actually recruit other kids to sell stuff that they would get a cut of or not. <laughs> but, and, it, but it is not unlike a multi-level marketing scheme. And boy, it was very important to them that it be boys. It says boys, 12 or older. If you are yeah. a boy, 12 or older, are you a boy? <laughs> and it has a little <laughs> checkbox for you to fill out that you're a boy. So they were terrified of girls selling grit. But... Yes. Well, they would get cooties all over them. Yes. And that would ruin their brand to have cootie infested grit. Okay. So let us move on to Journey into Mystery. Cover it says starring the mighty Thor, the most colorful superhero of all. See the heroic Thunder God battle the forces of evil. And then we just see Thor striking a heroic pose while spinning his hammer and a kind of generic city skyline in the background. So this looks like just a pinup page. This really doesn't say anything at all about the issue inside. So I wonder... I think this is a gorgeous cover. Oh, it is. Absolutely. No, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to downplay that. It is a very, very good cover. But my point was just that I found it striking that they aren't saying anything about the villain inside or about the things that he's going to do, anything about the plot in the book, which is, at this point in Marvel history, not that common. No, it is not. You know, I think this was Kirby's farewell to the book, and I think Kirby was like, I'm going to draw the hell out of a picture of Thor for the cover of this book for my final issue, because I think Kirby did have a special place in his heart for Thor, but it was time to move on. He was moving on from all these other books. He was quitting all of his books except for Fantastic Four, and he quit Thor too, and Clearly, he came to regret it and came back with a vengeance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So once again, though, we have Thor dealing with mobsters. Yes. So do you think that when Thor fights mobsters, is that more or less dignified than when he fights communists? It's problematic both ways. But, uh, <laughs> you know, at least like the communists have armies behind them uh, to fight <laughs> Thor with. I always just pity the poor mobsters who go up against Thor and like really cannot take him on in any way, shape or form. But uh, eventually the commies will be phased out, but the mobsters really won't. He's going to be fighting mobsters on into the late 60s once the commies are long gone. But yes, so we have here an appropriately named issue, the Thunder God and the Thug. We uh, yes. we now find out what the plot is. Yes. So we see Thor returning to Donald Blake's office building here. He's returning from something. They never tell us what he's returning from. But he flies too close to Donald Blake's office window and people inside his office waiting for him actually see Thor fly by. So he's like, oh, no, if I come in now, they'll think, hmm, maybe this crippled doctor is actually the Thunder God. So I can't have that. So which it's yeah. like there's so many other situations in which he transforms into Thor right in front of people. They're like, oh, I tossed him away over there. 
But then in, in including case, later in this very issue, he does the right? thing of you're staring right at Don Blake. I'm going to hit my cane on the ground. And then because there's a flash of light, you will have no idea how I then got replaced by Thor. And then suddenly right. he's all worried here. Right. Yeah. And yet here he's like, oh, no, they saw me. And so now if another blonde dude walks in the office five minutes later, they're going to be like, hey, that's Thor. So anyway, he goes up and steals a mannequin. Well, he says he'll pay them back later from a mannequin shop that happens to be in the building, gets some fabric and dresses it up like Thor. You know, the seamstress skills of the heroes in especially in early Marvel books is just astounding, really. It really uh, is. So, so he does this and then he tosses this mannequin out the window far enough to where it will just harmlessly drop out in a sea. I hope there's no one having their sailing boat out at that particular moment so that they'll be like, oh, well, there went Thor over there. And then so he sneaks in, turns into Dr. Blake and starts his day. So then we get That's a little recap. Clever. We get a little recap of his origin and a little recap of the thing that she that he is pining for Jane and that Jane is actually pining for him. But he doesn't think that she can love a man who is disabled and she just wants him to be romantic. But then she starts daydreaming about her crush, Thor. And we get her daydreams about what she would do to make Thor's life better. And we have a panel that is shared online all the time with Jane polishing Thor's hammer. Yes. Just because for reasons that. <laughs> that explain themselves is <laughs> why that's why this is such a fun panel to share she's polishing his hammer and he's like oh you needn't bother uh, and she's ironing his cape and he's like well i never really thought about that before and oh i'm gonna give you some sh a short haircut he's like i feel better already because that's you know that's really what makes men happy is if a woman comes into his life and then is just suddenly like oh, well, let me take care of your hobbies for you and go ahead and cut your hair the way I want it to be cut and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Well, I don't know. Could yes. be for some guys. So anyway, then we see Thug Thatcher, the mob leader. And for the not the last time in this issue, we have someone in the crowd talking about how he tried to muscle in on the steel industry and they caught him selling substandard steel and now he's headed for prison. That will come up again because it's a very important plot point in this yes. issue. So but, Thug so Thatcher, when the gangsters, yeah. so the gangsters are fighting on the street and this could not be more 30s again, like yes. Stan and Jack not realizing how old they are, like they're writing this story, which this whole thing is right out of a movie like Little Caesar or Public Enemy and does not seem to be the sort of thing that was still going on on the streets of New York in 1963, but okay. So yeah, then Thug Thatcher's thugs break him out of the police transport van or car, whatever it is there. That's right, they're in the van and crash into the car and they get into a shootout with the cops and Thug Thatcher gets hit. So they're like, some of his moles are like, oh, the boss has been hit, I need to go find a sawbones. They never say the word doctor. They only ever refer to him as a sawbones. And they do that several times. So they find that, hey, there's a sawbones. Oh, no, actually, I'm sorry. They do say doctor right here. But they say sawbones at least three times going forward. here. So they find that Don Blake, a doctor, is in the building. So they go up and they kidnap him. And of course, he can't turn into Thor because everyone will see that he's turning into Thor which is apparently a big deal now, but won't be later, but, you know, whatever. So they kidnap both Jane and Don and take them out to where the bad guys hold up. And they take the walking stick away from him to as he dresses the wound. He's like, oh, I can't turn I, into I actually Thor don't now. Think they, I actually don't think they do kidnap Jane. I think they just tie her up in the office 
and then oh, is that so? her in the office tied up and then kidnap Don and take Don with them out to uh, Thug Thatcher's place. You know what? You're, you're correct. Yes, 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 you are correct. That, that, sorry, I misspoke there. At this point, they take his cane away from him for, so he can use both hands to dress the wound. And then when he gets done, Thug Thatcher's like, yeah, well, you know, we can't have this guy knowing where I am. Go ahead and take him out back and take care of him, boys. And his girlfriend is just horrified that her man would be, you know, that Thug Thatcher would be such a thug. It's, you know, very <laughs> surprising to her, apparently. And no, she says, it, no, Thug, no, Thug, you can't harm him. Not after he saved your life. You're wrong, Ruby. I can't risk anyone squealing to the cops. And then is it just me or does the particular mobster in the bottom left panel of that page look like it's a caricature of somebody? It looks, there's something to it that looks like it's not just a sort of generic face that Jack Kirby pulled out from his mental library. It seems like there's someone that that's based on, but I don't know how young Marlon looks like a young Jack. Yeah, that's true, too. Yeah. Don Blake's like, what can I do? They've taken away my walking stick and I don't know what's going on. But you know what? Uh, What is it? Even though I haven't the body of Thor, I still have his brain, his thought processes. Once again, they're still kind of wishy-washy on that whole thing. At the very first couple of issues, that was clearly not the thought. But here at this point, they're drifting more into that. So then he realizes he can basically pray to Odin and then Odin will answer his prayers with lightning. Yes. Like literally, that's, you know, he prays to the God of the Norse and the God of the Norse then comes and sends a lightning bolt down to make the mobster drop his cane. So then at this point, he just straight up turns into Thor and, he's, and Thor says, thinks to himself, got to make an excuse fast. A uh, good thing I was passing by and saw this little scene. I've tossed your intended victim to safety. Tossed. He tossed a man with a limp. <laughs> <laughs> tossed where oh okay where is he now i'm gonna go find where you tossed him no i just tossed him to safety and now i'll deal with you but what you gonna do there's a neat little panel where thor drops his hammer on a floorboard causing it to seesaw upward taking the gunman hurling him up like a catapult which is kind of neat and he goes crashing into a mounted moose head Now, on the next page, this is page eight, first panel. Once again, my inker's eye fell on this. The antlers for the moose, those look like they may have been redone by somebody in production rather than by an actual artist. Yeah. I mean, that looks like somebody just went in there with a Sharpie and was just trying to cover something up. I don't know exactly what's going on with that. I have no basis for that other than just what I'm seeing on the page. That's what it looks like to me. And that did happen from time to time. You know, they would just, hey, hand it to, you know, Saul over there or whatever, and, you know, have him uh, just go ahead and cover this up with a white out and just draw something else in. And sometimes you'll see those and it looks like it's clearly just a ballpoint pen that somebody went back over yeah. stuff with. So then we get Thor using super breath in this, which, you know, I don't know if we see that much again. Yes. We, we then see him use his hammer to knock down an entire row of mature trees to block in the bad guys. Where I'm like, wow, that looks like more like a buzzsaw than a hammer. But, you know, what you're going to do? And also, hey, dude, you just knocked down a whole bunch of nice trees. But, you know, <laughs> yes. um, it was the 1960s. Yeah, the ecology was. movement had not been invented yet. Not not really. Uh, so, yes, we have super breath. What was it? Uh, what else was it here? There's some other weird, like, Silver Age Superman superpower that I remember him using at some point here. I don't know. Anyway, Thug Thatcher and his girlfriend get away. And he's just being uh, a jerk to her. 
Thor wraps up the rest of the bad guys in the hideout and then heads back to his office where Thug Thatcher has reached Jane, who they had, as you pointed out, they had just left tied up there and is now holding her hostage because they have noticed that Don Blake and Thor seem to be around a lot. There must be some sort of connection between the two. (laughs) And also, we just saw Don Blake in our office suddenly disappear in a flash of light and be replaced by Thor. But there's got to be some sort of connection. We just can't imagine what it could be. (laughs) Right. And then here he is. He comes and flies back into Don Blake's window after his adventures. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, it's like, once again, yes, all this is suspicious, and yet nobody ever worries about it. It's just when somebody sees Thor fly by, it's like, oh, no, now they'll figure out my secret. I don't know. Yes, so Thor is going to sacrifice himself for Jane, and she's like, but why? He doesn't even know who I am. And it's like, you two have run into each other before, I'm pretty sure. Yes. Oh, that's right. Here is his super ventriloquism. Yes. On page 10, top of the page. So we've got super breath. And super ventriloquism. How is this not a 1960s Superman comic? (laughs) Yes, this is very much like a Mort Weisinger Superman comic. Yes, he throws his voice out the window and also seemingly does some impressions as well. And he pretends to be cops (laughs) out the window saying, drop the gun, Thatcher, we have you covered. And Thatcher's like, who? Who said that? But it was Thor using using his super developed vocal cords. He throws his voice across the room. Yeah, we, we have some fits and starts in the early uh, Marvel Universe here. So then Thor swings his hammer around, creating a vortex, which actually carries Jane out the window, Dorothy and Wizard of Oz style, basically. Yes. <laughs> and then he flies after her. He puts her down safely and then goes to take care of the, the gangster. Now, at this point, we've talked about how so far and still up to this point, Thor has a certain number of taps that he has to do to get certain effects out of the hammer. And we've still got that here. I think this is a new one where if he taps it four times on the ground, he gets lightning. Is that the first time we've gotten that? But yes, it says editor's note, when Thor's hammer is pounded four times, it produces lightning. And I think that's the first time we've gotten that particular thing, right? We've got one one stamp, two stamps, and three stamps. I think this is the first time they've told us what four stamps does, right? I think so. So it turns out that Thug Thatcher has then climbed to safety atop a steel girder building. And of course, it's his own defective steel that he has climbed up onto that he has been selling. And that becomes his downfall. So people on the street notice this. One of them says, faulty steel. It's probably the very stuff that Thatcher was himself forcing companies to buy. So ironically, he caused his own capture. And then and then Thor then <laughs> decides to once again ask for some help from Odin, use another one of his magical powers, and erase the girlfriend's memory. So that he says, the memory of Thug Thatcher is forever removed from her mind. She is free of her tragic love, free to find one who will be worthy of her. Actually, this somewhat presages or presages prefigures <laughs> somehow I would say prefigures uh, yeah prefigures what Walt Simonson does in the early 80s when he finally gets rid of Jane Foster as a character now I'm assume she came back later but you know for the time being he didn't want to deal with the whole Don Blake part of Thor so he just basically got rid of the Don Blake uh, persona and he had Odin wipe Jane Foster's memories of no, no, having no. been This all happens in just a couple of years. This happens with Stan and Jack. Everything you're saying happens with Stan and Jack. Really? Yeah. Okay. After I, a couple I... more years of Stan and Jack, then while Stan and Jack are both still in the book, the whole Jane Foster storyline comes to an end. It culminates, I think, rather nicely in a storyline where he finally says, let's get married. I love you. I, I'm Thor. 
And that's going on for a while. And then he finally says to Odin, you must let me marry her. And Odin is like, well, you can't marry someone who's not a god. But I tell you what, I'll turn her into a god and you can marry her. And he turns Jane into a god. And then Jane just doesn't like it. She doesn't like being a god. And that's when Thor realizes, I can't be with Jane. And then he wipes Jane's memories of himself and sets her up with another doctor, both personally and professionally. And then he meets Sif in the same issue. And then that's his love interest from that point on. This all happens with Stan and Jack. So I, okay, so I have a memory of basically that same thing happening when Walt Simonson first came on the book. My assumption here is that other writers, meanwhile, had reverted back to the Don Blake and Jane Foster stuff. No, or maybe so in Walt Simonson's run on the book, he eventually does have Jane appear very deep into his run. Once he had left the art, once it was Selby Sema on art, then they just sort of do do a redux of that story where he encounters her and they she already had come back in the 70s and come back. And then she shared a body with Sif for a long time and they had had all sorts of storylines. But then she was gone from the book again and had been gone for the book for some time when Simonson was on the book. And then he did have her reappear at one point in a storyline after he was almost done with his run on the book. And I think Thor may have wiped her memories again. But okay. I think the main storyline you're remembering is a Stan and Jack story. Okay. I, I haven't read the Stan and Jack story one yet. Once again, it may have been a rehashing of that, Maybe. that they did, you know, because I mean, they would often do stuff like that. But I thought it was right around the time that he got his new uh, secret identity as a construction worker, like Sig Sigurdsson or something like that. Yeah. And uh, well, I'll have to look that up later. So yeah, that was a interesting issue. Probably not the, you know, I mean, he's fighting gangsters and sort of exhibiting weird Superman powers, but I like the over loyal mob girlfriend. You know, that's a yes. nice touch. And they're able to a little bit more deftly handle to some extent the I can't turn into Thor for one reason or another things. And at least some parts of this issue, <laughs> not not other parts, but, you know, it's, it is like, oh, OK, well, I actually am a doctor and I have a an ethical duty to heal the person who is here rather than just to go ahead, turn into a thunder god and start hitting people with a hammer, uh, you know, and so. Okay, you know, I, I can kind of get that a little bit. There are other parts in which it doesn't work, but you know. No, yeah, I liked the element of the girlfriend who Thor wipes the memory of and that Thor is interacting with Odin more in this issue. Generally speaking, given that this did seem like at the time like it was going to be Kirby's farewell to the book, it would have been better to have him go out on a bit more of a high note uh, with more of an Asgardian story. But as it turns out, Kirby came back with a vengeance. But this is Kirby's farewell to the book for now. So let us move on to Strange Tales. We have the return of the tech bro. Yes. Do you want to um, talk about the cover? Okay. So we're going to do Strange Tales 105. Human Torch flames into action again. The return of the wizard, the evil genius who has sworn to destroy the Human Torch. So a bunch of cops are behind a force field. The wizard is once again back in his beautiful modern architecture house. The torch is saying the wizard's force field can't stop me. I can always fly above it. And the wizard says, I expected you to try that torch. You will find the wizard is prepared for you. And the cops are saying, why did the Fantastic Four let the torch tactical the fortress single-handed? His flaming powers won't be a match for that fiend's wizardry. Yeah, well, uh, I think it will be. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I disagree. I think it'll be just fine. It's so ironic that this book came out the same month as Fantastic Four number 11, because of all of the incompetent Sue Storm issues ever published by Marvel Comics, I would say that this issue where she guest stars in her brother's book is the most incompetent Sue ever was. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> she, uh, as Johnny points out at the end, we begin 
with a nice clever sequence where the wizard is in prison. He gets a job in the prison hospital where he gets access to chemicals in his cell. He melts a hole in the wall. The cops are then like, he must have gone through that hole in the wall. And they all rush through the hole in the wall. And then he's like, nope, I was just hiding right inside the door. And now I get to just breeze out of here. So then he goes back to his house, which you wouldn't think he would do. But he's got a force field, which can keep everybody out but the torch. And he demands the torch come and face him. So then the torch lives with Sue. And she is like, I forbid you to go face him. And he creates a flame double of himself who is standing there doing science with a big <laughs> lab with a microscope. And it's like, really, that's what you're going to convince you think will be the most convincing thing for Sue to find you sitting here doing science with a microscope. He's sciencing. Yeah, he's, he's sciencing. <laughs> and uh, she does not fall for it for a second. So she is not totally incompetent. She quickly figures out that's not really him. And then she calls Reed and Ben and they're like, uh, dude, we're not going to help him out. He's on his own. And Sue is like, I'm going to help him out. So, you know, good and heroic. Sue is going to go help him out. Meanwhile, Johnny is here facing the wizard. We've got something that happens a lot where somebody shoots, in this case, shoots a shell at Johnny. And he says, I don't have to dodge it because my flame is my protective force field. And it's just as effective as yours. Got any more shells you want to have melted with? So this will frequently happen with Human Torch, where someone will be shooting bullets at him or shooting missiles at him. And he's like, well, I'll just melt it before it gets to me. And it's like, okay, so you've got <laughs> flaming hot slag heading for you. <laughs> like, it's the amount of mass and velocity is not going to change if it's melted. It's still, I don't, I, and, and it always, it always sort of falls limply after it gets melted. Like, why would it fall? I've never quite bought that. You know, this was continued up to the burn issues where he was effectively bulletproof, where people would fire bullets at him and the bullets would melt, and so they wouldn't hurt him. I never bought it. Mm -hmm. We have yes. another part of our long-time discussion where the wizard opens up a trap door underneath him and he says, that's the trouble with you geniuses. Your knowledge is so advanced. You often seem to forget simple basic facts, such as the fact that flame is lighter than air. So the human torch doesn't fall through trap doors. So that answers that question we've had. Meanwhile, the wizard figures out that Sue has also gone into the house, shoots a spray at her to make her visible, walls her up, walls Johnny up with her. She tries to get out. She can't. He figures out how to get out. He burns his way out. He then goes to the wizard. The wizard pulls out a science fiction gun. The torch then, instead of just engulfing him in flame, <laughs> sends a fire saw above the head of the wizard to saw out a bit of the ceiling to fall on the wizard. And this is after he created basically a mortar, uh, a mortar launcher out of fire. So yes. essentially, the torch at this point is basically Green Lantern. Yes. Oh, I can create whatever thing I want out of, in this case, flame rather than green energy or whatever. <laughs> what? That's uh, OK. Sure. OK, we'll, we'll go. <laughs> we'll go with that. Yes. And then so he goes home back to live with Sue and she says, Johnny, you deliberately disobeyed orders by tackling the wizard yourself. Reed will be furious with you. It's a lucky thing I went after you to help you. And he says, sure, sure. A little more help like that. And I'd have been cooked. And she says, take that, you ungrateful little beast, and throws a pillow at him. And he says, that's the trouble with gals, no sense of humor. But in fact, she was no help at all. I mean, she just she just got her she just got herself caught yeah. immediately when she tried to help him. Yeah, yeah. Th this was one of her more hostage kind of appearances, wasn't it? Yes. Last time in the first wizard appearance, she saved the day. So I guess they had earned a more hostage issue. She, well, that, I, well, that 
that's really what issues of women in displaying competence are for, is just to buy yourself another <laughs> issue in which you can show that the woman is incompetent. That's how it pays off, right? I mean, that's, uh, hello, is this thing on? You know. You've got to put a few competent <laughs> issues in the bank and then you and then you get to cash them out. Right, yeah, because that's how things work. You're not setting up expectations, you're building up credit, right? That's how yes. life works? Yes. yes, okay, excellent. If any of our female listeners have any problem with what we're saying, then that's the trouble with gals, no sense of humor. And he yeah. spells no sense of humor, S-E-N-S-A-H-U-M-O-R, all one word. <laughs> That's how you spell it when you're when you're talking to women. You know, you need to yeah. you need to sound it out like that, apparently. So um uh, okay, uh getting myself in trouble here. All right, so shall we move on to our final comic of the evening? Tales yes. to Astonish number 40, featuring the astonishing Ant-Man. And we have a picture of what looks like the Ant-Man slumping in defeat inside a car motor. And indeed, we will find out that is more or less what is happening. Although he looks a little larger than an ant here, you know, in comparison to that uh, that machinery, but who knows. It says, see the true story behind, quote, the day the Ant-Man failed. I, at least this quote. time, they don't feel compelled to go ahead and be strictly scrupulously honest on the cover and they don't feel the need to say that day Ant-Man seemed to fail. Like, right. like or, 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 put, said, or putting failed in quotes or something like <laughs> yes. that. So they've learned they don't have to be strictly honest on the cover as opposed to the issue where they said Ant-Man seems to be betrayed by the ants, but we we can't honestly claim fiction, he really is. Fiction is lying. Like that's, you know, you, you can lie when you're telling fiction because that's what fiction is, right? The Astonishing Ant-Man so we've then just got a splash page that's just sort of a gratuitous little splash page. We see that Hank Pym is working on a special new kind of gas mask made of unstable molecules. The army will be pleased with the new gas mask I'm inventing. It's made of unstable molecules, which adjust themselves to the size of the wearer's head. Reader note, that will be important later. This is gas mask. Yes. <laughs> and then it turns out that there is somebody who has been hijacking this one... Owner of the Mitchell Armored Truck Company, Howard Mitchell. Ah, and that's right. Someone's been hijacking all his trucks. And at this point, if you've read any issues of Ant-Man at all... You know what's going to happen here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's like, hmm, I wonder who could be hijacking your stuff. Could it be you? But he's saying that I, I need Ant-Man, but is it, there's no way to contact him. Well, of course, there's ants that are everywhere. And, you know, you'd think in the days of DDT, there would be fewer ants all the way around. So Henry Pym hears an alert that the ants have heard about his presence being requested. So then he goes and shrinks himself down and then uses his little catapult once again or cannon, or whatever you call it, to go across town. One thing that we see here is that a, and it's a great panel, where a bird is startled by the Ant-Man flying into the bird's path of flight. And the bird looks very startled and distressed in a, in a very imaginative-looking panel. But this is just one of those things where if you're being catapulted like blocks or miles away, and you have to get the angle and the you know everything else just right, it's like, yeah, but then you bump into a bird and then next thing you know, you're just coming crashing down <laughs> some completely other place. In this case, that isn't what happened. However, he does start to overshoot the mark and the ants have to climb up extra high in order to keep him from splatting against the wall, which um, yes. once again, it looks as though he's flying there rather than catapulting. I think they're already starting to get tired of this device. This, I, yes. We're going to stop seeing it soon, I think. Yes, yes I You am. can tell they're getting sort of bored of it because they're like, what if he missed? 
<laughs> like this is a really what if he hits a bird what if he missed maybe this is a dumb idea maybe we should rethink this so then ant-man shows up at mitchell's office and says what's the problem i heard you were looking for me and he's like yes they've been hijacking my trucks and you know i'm gonna go out of business and can you help me so then he starts asking some questions about who could benefit from this and then we have one of these really ham-handed sort of things <laughs> yes. where it's like Oh, by the way, that's an interesting collection of primitive art. Inca, isn't it? Yes, I was in Peru last year. I spent some time with the Indians in the jungle. But that's unimportant now. All that matters is that you catch the hijacker. It's like, hmm, I wonder if this could be relevant later. You think? Yes. I don't know. It's such a natural aside for these two characters to have that it really sort of feels like it could just be there and it's its own explanation, right? I mean, it's... <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. What are the odds? That's going to come up later. It's Larry Lieber. And speaking of which, at some point, we're going to lose Larry Lieber. He's he's also. Oh, yeah. But I guess he's definitely still around next month because he gets co-creator credit on Iron Man. So uh, he's definitely yeah. still around. But yeah. uh, but that's that's very much awkward Larry Lieber scripting there when they include that. I'm sure Jack, if we want to give Jack credit for the plotting, I'm sure he wasn't very happy with how awkwardly the dialogue handled it. But not that, <laughs> I, not that Jack ever read these comics. <laughs> not that, <laughs> as, as shown by the fact that he did not protest Vince Glad inking his comics. That is an indication that he never actually read the comics after he sent them out the door. So then Ant-Man shows up and it's a very impressive bit of acting. He shows up and suddenly claims to have gotten appendicitis and collapses from <laughs> appendicitis and limps away on an ant. And they're like, oh, I guess Ant-Man can't protect the armored truck because he's got appendicitis. And <laughs> it's such a weird plot turn. I always believed it when I first read it. You know, because of course the cover can't lie. The cover says the day the Ant-Man failed. I was like, does he really have appendicitis? Uh, which, of course, very much dates the issue. But then... Uh, I mean, I guess that's not true. I guess people still get yeah. appendicitis today. Yeah, people get ascended. At one point when my daughter was younger and my wife was away doing something else, I was at home and in charge when she was having some really bad abdominal pain in the middle of the night. And it was one of those things where it's like, it's probably just gas, but it is one of those things in the back of my head like, this sounds kind of like appendicitis. And I was like trying to look up what the uh, tests for is this appendicitis on the internet. So, I mean, yeah, I don't know if it necessarily dates things. It's still something that I worried about as a parent just within the last decade. Yeah, I guess you're right. So then sure enough, the truck gets hijacked. They they have a huge magnet to pull the armored truck into the back of another truck. And it's one of those like U-shaped a... magnets, right? It, it's... Of course. A guy in a crazy mask calling himself the hijacker tries to use a blowtorch to open up the truck. And then it turns out the Ant-Man is there and he didn't have appendicitis. And of course, in his flashback, he once again has to have set up a ridiculously complicated setup to travel because that's always Ant-Man's biggest nemesis is traveling in any way, shape or form. <laughs> and he had set up a big wood and rubber band type apparatus to fling himself up onto a roof where he had a toy plane. Now, in fact, which would have totally have... broken his shins, by the way, or his knees, <laughs> uh, the way this thing's set up. There's, <laughs> and toy planes do not actually have little tiny controls in them, but he actually has an actual, honest to God, a shrunken down plane with its own little controls flies over to the car, was wearing, of course, his gas mask because we'll find out later how he knew there was going to be gas. But then we get a really gorgeous sequence, which is also on the cover, of him inside the mechanisms of the car. It's very much sort of like Forbidden Planet. I'm sorry. It's I think it's Fantastic Voyage, isn't it? Yes, it's very much like Fantastic Voyage in terms of he's making his way through the inside of the car and his ants are helping him on the outside. Anyway, of course, 
he takes off the hijacker's mask. And anyone who's read an Ant-Man comic is not surprised that it's actually Mr. Mitchell himself. And, of course, he says, no. I, I no. know. My company was losing money. I thought I could get it back by stealing it. And no one would ever know. Then I thought if I myself sent for the Ant-Man, he'd never suspect me. Such poor thinking. <laughs> and Ant-Man has already encountered it so many times. But, oh, well. A couple of things I want to point out along the way there that, that jumped out at me. When the hijacker reveals himself during this last hijacking, they say, look, he must be the, the, the hijacker. And he responds, exactly. And as the spider said to the fly, welcome, suckers. I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. I mean, it's fun. I'll give him that. It's it's a fun line. We forgot to mention that the Amen had figured out the whole thing ahead of time because he says, I first suspected Mitchell when I saw the primitive statues in his office and I learned of his time spent in the jungles of Peru, for I knew that the Indians there have an ancient vapor, the inhaling of which causes a lapse of memory. So sure. that's how he knew to wear the gas mask. And that's how he knew that all this was going to go down. And because it's happened to him over and over again in this comic. I mean, anyone with any real knowledge of the world or you know, someone who's well-traveled knows about the ancient vapors in South America that cause you to lose your memory. Yes. Who doesn't know that? You really should have thought that one through. The Nazca lines and the amnesia-inducing gas. Yes, absolutely. Those are the two things we all need to know about ancient South America. The other thing I was noting is that he got like a whole army of ants to actually turn on the windshield wiper mechanism. Now... If you think about just driving your car when you flip the windshield wiper on, right? It's not that much effort. Imagine the number of ants that it would take to do that same action. Right? And, and that's what he does. But once again, this is to yes. get around the transportation problem. He needs to get from the windshield to the guy's mask. And so he needs the windshield wiper turned on. So he has the ants swarm the windshield wiper controls and flips him onto the hijacker's mask. And then he's able to rip off the hijacker's face mask, rip it to pieces. So weird. <laughs> I mean, Ant-Man, early Ant-Man issues are just so bonkers. Yeah. That's what I love about them. I love how bonkers they are, but they can be, once again, kind of Scooby-Doo-ish, which is what I don't necessarily like as much about them. As you said, Jack will be gone next issue. And you remember who comes on next? I'm trying to remember. It's Hack. Is it Heck? I think be. it's Heck. I don't remember. Okay. We'll see. So Jack's farewell to Ant-Man, except for when Jack just does the first 10 issues of Avengers, he'll be reunited with Ant-Man. But this is his permanent farewell to Ant-Man's comics. And I'd say it's a good final issue. It's a fun issue. And I mean, I say that. I basically just love the engine sequence. I love the oh, going yeah. through the inside of a car sequence. I think it's a fine farewell to Ant-Man from Jack. Yeah, I think it's somewhat emblematic of the run as a whole with some of the really goofy gadgets that he has and, you know, and a lot of the great fun with perspective and different settings that you can put him in, as well as the rather poorly thought out, relatively obvious villain. <laughs> you know? It's it's all pretty much emblematic of everything we've gotten so far. So it's it, yes, it is a nice farewell. And yes, indeed, you were correct. Don Heck will be doing the art next issue. And we, we will be able to argue about Don Heck when that happens. I guess we are done with this month. Yeah, this is the end of an era. This is our last month of Kirby drawing all the books. This is our last month of just four books. I suspect that we're going to have to start breaking up the months into multiple episodes from this point on. You know, originally we were going to be doing an episode every week and we were going to be doing a month every episode. And it was like, oh, maybe eventually we'll get caught up to the modern Marvel Universe and then we'll run out of episodes <laughs> because we're all caught up. 
Well, of course, that wasn't going to happen, but I suspect we're going to start doing two episodes per month. And now that we're recording biweekly, that means we'll be recording one month for every month. So suffice it to say, we will never get caught up. Oh, no. I actually find myself finding it quite hilarious that you uh, were implying that we might ever actually get caught up with any of this stuff. <laughs> yes. I was joking. Yes. They put out a lot of books later. I mean, I remember when we were kids growing up in the 80s, there'd be maybe a dozen issues each week that came out. That'd be about oh, right. Yeah. You were always much more of a completist than I was. And you were buying almost every Marvel book yeah. for a while. There was a little while there where I was buying every continuity Marvel book that came out. And even though I was like, I knew uh, this post Frank Miller, David Mazzucchelli Daredevil stuff is just the worst, but uh, but it's part of the Marvel continuity. So I guess I got to get it. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, yeah, there was like a year of filling issues after Miller and Mazzucchelli, right. but then it was Nesenti and Ramita and they did a great job. Yeah, yeah, right. But I'm talking about like some of that Secret Wars 2 crossovers and all that yes. kind of yeah. Oh, you bought yeah. every Secret Wars two crossover kind, like oh, even wow. even for the books you weren't buying. Now, when you say it out loud, it just sounds so horrible. <laughs> <laughs> it was God. Secret Wars two was just uh, crushed my soul. It it really was awful. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, it was the worst. That's decades away. We will not be getting to that anytime soon. Thanks a lot. I have had fun this week and this month. This this issue. This episode. Whatever we're doing, I look forward to entering a brave new world next month with other artists and other creators involved. Yes, our Spider-Man number one and the introduction of Iron Man. It's going to be a big, big month that, like I said, maybe split into two episodes. We'll see if we can get it done in one. Thanks for everything. Goodbye, America. Goodbye, everybody, no matter where you are in the world. <laughs> Goodbye to our American listeners and our un-American listeners. <laughs> you, know, you know, we do have a regular listener in Moscow. Oh, I didn't know that. All right. Great. Yes. A, a regular listener in Moscow. We have somebody who's at least downloaded one episode in Vladivostok. We've got some folks in the Philippines and Italy and Belgium, a number of different places. So let me say goodbye or dasvidaniya. <laughs> sure. Let's go ahead and do that. Dasvidaniya and ciao and all sorts of other stuff. Thanks, everybody. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.